Hello, Acid Horizon fans. This is Craig here. I just wanted to let everybody know we had a great reading group session for our A Thousand Plateaus reading group this past weekend. The good news is, is that you can join anytime. The next plateau that we're going to read is The Apparatus of Capture. That reading group session is scheduled for the last weekend in April. But even if you can't make it, you can access our recordings by becoming a patron on Patreon for as little as one dollar. Navigate to our Patreon account by clicking on the link in the show notes, and you can find access to our blogs, to our merch store, to previous posts, and other reading groups and seminars that we have recorded for patrons. In the coming weeks, we have exciting episodes planned on shelling, on Bataille, Nancy, and Blanchot, and also an episode on Amé Césaire. Today, we are fortunate once again to have with us Cooper Cherry of Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour, with whom we will discuss the work of Jean Baudrillard in his notable work, Symbolic Exchange and Death. Together, we took a look at chapter two of that work, which is entitled Order of the Simulacra. So without further ado, let's check in with Cooper and discuss Baudrillard's concept of the political economy of the sign. Welcome to Acid Horizon, the theory podcast. Today, we are very happy to present to you an episode on Jean Baudrillard, Symbolic Exchange and Death, Chapter 2, Order of the Simulacra. And no better person to have in our presence today than Cooper Cherry from Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour, who associates Baudrillard as being one of his primary theorists that he works with. How are you doing today, Coop? I'm doing very well. Very excited to uh, be talking about Baudrillard, though I am without my my esteemed co-host Taylor Atkins, who is sort of my so I'm I'm you know the bumper bowling is released and I'm hopefully I won't have too many gutter balls today. <laughs> well, someone needs to do the rest of the admin, you know, and keep things floating back at the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Yeah, that's of right. Course. Yes. We got to keep the lights on over there. <laughs> and of course, then we have Adam in the mix, and we also have Will. And our plan here today was not only to talk about this chapter, but also see what kind of tools we could pull out to apply to an analysis of what is going on with respect to the reporting on Ukraine. Now, some of our listeners had asked us, now that the Russia thing's happening, why don't you do an episode on that? I mean, personally, I feel out of my depth. Even if I was in my depth on it, there's just so much dubious reporting. And and, and that's actually part of what's happening in the Baudrillard episode here. Hopefully what we can do is take this framework and do sort of a meta-analysis of the way that media is circulating right now with respect to the ideas that we have on the page. So let's get right to it. Cooper, can you just give us a little rundown of like what, what's happening? Why did you pick this chapter to talk about that topic? Well, I think for, you know, just to back up and I guess situate people within the context of where symbolic exchange and death falls within Baudrillard's revoir, if if you if you'll indulge me, would be that um I think this is his most systematic work and where he begins to sort of break from a more Marxist tradition in terms of his analysis. Because he had written some pieces before this, political economy of the sign being one, and I think system of objects. System of objects may have been his dissertation. So here he's being extremely systematic, probably the most systematic he'll ever be following this. He gets a lot more into a sort of theory fiction approach to writing and philosophy. 
But here he, I mean, he lays out his simulation theory, simulation and simulacra better than you could ever find within the the confines of that book. So anytime I hear or see people talking about simulacra and simulation as the entry point to Baudrillard, I say, oh no, no, it's, there, it's a very, at that point, he's very much in that kind of theory fiction mode. You know, he's not being systematic. He's not really hitting these points. He's kind of weaving a narrative more so than being like a stringent philosopher per se in that work. Although, you know, Things like the Borges idea, right? The the map has exceeded the territory, right? That's a, a metaphor that he draws heavily upon. That kind of makes sense. But I think here is really the best starting point for Baudrillard. He's the most systematic and the way in which he goes through simulation and simulacra and that whole procession of the simulacra, I should say, is is really good. I think Will's ear should perk up here because I think actually – Baudrillard's method is that of is the sort of Nietzschean genealogical method that he probably cribs a bit from Foucault in that way, in lieu of an approach to you know something like madness and civilization. This is sort of a historical genealogy of the political economy of the sign. So going back through you know from the pre-capitalist or pre-industrial era, the Renaissance, and then the hyper-real, and those three sort of successive phases in how signs operate and how we interact with them and how they sort of shape what we perceive as reality itself. Yeah, it seems to loosely follow somewhat of a Marxist framework, but I mean, I detect a lot of echoes of Marcel Moss and even Bataille's methodology to a certain point here. Absolutely. Maybe we can talk about first the three orders of simulacra. And, and, and thanks, Coop, for that introduction. Maybe, Adam, you can kind of break that down. What, what's happening there? Definitionally speaking, a simulacra is a copy of a copy. It's not simply the copy itself. It is the reproduction of the reproduction, which reproduction sh- shapes the whole thing. So in these first three orders, um, they're mapped onto three different kinds of ways of thinking about value, which correspond to you know, three different kinds of revolution. So the first one is the counterfeit. So the copy of the copy as a counterfeit. It's not just that, for example, you know, a Gucci bag is not the always an original Gucci bag. It's an original copy of a Gucci bag because there's an archetype of producing a Gucci bag, which is again and again produced. The counterfeit is a copy of that copy. Essentially, this is the scheme of the classical period, and what and what makes it a counterfeit is that it transgresses against its origin because its origin is tied to a certain kind of status, a certain kind of obligation to the name and the status and the aristocracy of that status, and this is why it's such a, a feudal kind of production or a feudal as it is gradually transitioning out of itself into the modern uh, world, which you see in the Renaissance. So it, the counterfeit is the first schema. In the classical period, you get the copy of a copy, which is detaching it from this, you know, the respect of the traditional forms of status to which the sign is obligated. The sign of a house, the sign of a your role as a serf or as an aristocrat, as a lord. The dominant proper names of of the world according to uh, God and, and, the, and the feudal order, at least in how the is portrayed in particularly Catholicism. And then we have a very sort of restricted circulation of those signs. And then we're going to be, as we're going to see if we go further on from this counterfeit mode, we're going to move into production in which the order of reference for a counterfeit is detached from this, this obligating fixed structure where everyone is in their place. It's going to become, as, as Baudrillard says, emancipated 
insofar as it becomes attached from any of any of these particular names or houses or references, and its reference referential quality, the meaning of that counterfeit then becomes in terms of its relation to a certain set of natural qualities, which has to reproduce in being, you know, sort of a genuine copy of that thing, you know, real fake watches. It feels just like the real thing. And one of the interesting points of Baudrillard's methodology is this sort of escalating orders of universality. So with the emergence of the Renaissance, you have the form of the universal, or at least in, in this work, an example is made of stucco work. And so Prior to that, you can imagine, you know, the things that are made uh, around a castle or in a house or uh, in an estate, you know, being made of wood and being made of metal. But the advent of stucco now allows the creation of all kinds of things out of the same material. It could be a small statue or just some ornamentation on a molding in a house or an imitation of a wood cornice. It was probably the case that this was actually cheaper and it's with the advent of this universal substance that man believes that they can now alter nature in a way that they haven't been able to do so before, thus giving a partial emancipation of, of signs and codes. But maybe before I go any further with that, we'll, we'll just see where Will's at with all this. Like, what are some things that you're you're focusing on in the initial part of the text? Well, I love the function of the model for stucco, too, and the 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 story of the, the Ardennes, the attempt to capture the world in its entirety through concrete. Oh, the concrete, right? Yeah. Every, everything is concrete. The question that I have that I want to iron out for Baudrillard, and I think Coop can probably answer this effectively, is just what precisely is Baudrillard responding to and what is the urgency and necessity of symbolic exchange and death? Why fundamentally do we need to alter our understanding of the relationship between the copy and the simula? These games of representation and the processes through which like, they become layered has been a fundamental element of the philosophy of representation since at least the statesman right, uh, and the sophist. So what is the fundamental urgency of, of Baudrillard's project as it pertains to the way in which we philosophize about the copy and and the the simulacra. You know, to critique Baudrillard, I mean, there is a certain romantic element in this critique, right? The sort of mourning the loss of the real to some degree, although he's never quite consistent with that. It feels like he sort of wavers on this point of, you know, either we need to push, we need to sort of pursue a nihilism that is so thoroughgoingly nihilistic that we we sort of emerge on the other side of that. <laughs> Or we need to sort of become anarcho-primitivist <laughs> sort of social arrangement that we had where symbolic exchange was the dominant mode of production, right? And I sort of tied this onto going back to something like anti-Oedipus and the marking of the body where like at one point in the, the system of cruelty, right, like the markings of the ledger are visible on the body itself. Well, eventually as society evolves, as production as modes of production evolve things become abstracted from the body they become disassociated disentangled from the body from the real or whatever right it's hard to really concretize the validity or whatever of this other than as a model for understanding how media and things operate within our world today i mean i don't know if i could really tie this back to a very good legacy of um a philosophy in that way but I do think it provides a very compelling description of what we face. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And if we want to get into critiques of that, I do have, 
you know, there's there are some that we can get into later where I think the distinguishing features between the concept and the object and what what's real and what's not, maybe that distinction's not so important at the end of the day, or what the copy is rather. Yeah, and definitely in terms of the problematic of why read Baudrillard, I mean, if you're if we're seeing, you know, especially on social media, even social media Post upon post, layers upon layers, retweets upon retweets, quote tweets upon quote tweets, each producing a different link containing more or less the same data with a few revisions, or conditioned upon reproducing the same data. The constant reproduction of signs that seem to make less and less sense, and you know, but also can provide this incredible enjoyment in the, in their reproduction, even from the the meme to seeing you know the, the Leonardo DiCaprio meme, for God's sake, where he points at it, it's like, oh yes, I recognise that. And this sort of excess of enjoyment in communication, you can take this back to one of Baudrillard's main influences in Bataille, going back to the Inner Experience book, which is a project about saying, you know, we are swallowed by discourse and communication. How could we speak of a non-communication? And it's sort of about looking for that point of rupture where you can say, oh, I'm finally out of this, or looking for even the possibility of getting out of this. And I think Insofar as we're incredibly swallowed, particularly in the age of uh, working, not the working from home is bad at all, but when you know, in the excess of working from home, you are more detached from the world in some ways, but through social media, you become overdetermined by it because you're exposed to reproductions of reproductions of all the worst things happening in the world at once. Baudrillard is going to be a guy you're going to want to turn to. One of the challenges that I'm working through, and my exposure to Baudrillard has been limited to just a few books, and so the questions that I want answered have not yet been clearly answered by what I have read. One thing that I've heard in the past, you know, from either folks online or maybe a professor is that the the charge that Baudrillard is actually reactionary in some ways. Um, here in this particular chapter, he's going to make the assertion that through Benjamin and through the work of uh, Marshall McLuhan, that his notion of reproduction is something that outstrips a Marxist framework. This is another what Marx failed to consider moment in philosophy. However, you brought up the nihilism of Baudrillard. And one of the things that we get towards the end of this chapter that maybe we can talk about a little bit is this idea of a rival force, almost like a a kind of potlatch energy within the city that takes the form of things like tagging and graffiti and so forth, and maybe could even be expanded to notions of crime and, and maybe terror, like when we think about other things that Baudrillard has written about, as the only sorts of forces that stand to challenge advanced capitalism. And the one challenge that I see is that the praxis that, that's implicit in this work is a kind of revolt, but it never seems, well, at least in this chapter and in other places like in Agony of Power, for example, I don't see a place where Baudrillard suggests that the new might emerge out of any sort of positioning oneself against the hyper-real. And I, I don't know, maybe Cooper, you can talk a little bit about the sort of nihilistic dimension of his work and maybe answer some of those questions. I would, per, it might be helpful perhaps to think about his work like in a thermodynamics or like uh, in terms of entropy and neg entropy, because one aspect that we haven't really discussed, I guess I should, this was, this perhaps goes to Will's prior question about symbolic exchange and death. So one thing about this is that he refers in the last chapter of the book to to a work by Arthur C. Clarke, and it's some I forget the name of it, but it's like 
the premise is there are these priests that are slowly and methodically reading through all the nine billion names of God. And as they do so, like so eventually there becomes this this American company approaches them or decides, hey, we can do this mechanistically. We have this machine that will go ahead and say these – it will speed up the process of saying the nine billion names of God and bring about the apocalypse. So the important nugget being here is that we are surrounded by dead labor, not only dead labor in the productive sense of like material production, but also in the production of language and sign systems. Basically, my interpretation is he believes that effectively what happens is this entropy builds up to such a great metastable limit that we're sort of frozen in this amber of signification. And there's no real way to crack through that membrane and reach the actual real terrain to where we can actually achieve some type of revolution or change or what may be the case. But at the same time, at some point in the book, he does say, you know, we can't defeat capitalism on the plane of the real. So I'm not sure what, again, this is where he's leaves things very confusing for me at points. One, one question I had actually was in terms of, because we only read chapter two of uh, Symbolic Exchange and Death, I was wondering sort of where death comes into this, particularly around the notion of equivalence. Reproduction is production of equivalences. Uh, we eventually will go talk about the real, and the real is defined as that which we can provide an equivalent reproduction because he's basing it on um, experimental science. It's a, it's a contemporary of science. Science says, you know, this is a process we can equivalently reproduce it. Exactly, and that's how we confirm it as real. His version of the real is inductive. But when it comes to this equivalence being stuck in you know, this an endless amber of reproducing equivalence again and again and again, such that we only have copies of copies, equivalence of equivalence, and the original, you know, the first part of the equal sign, you know, A equals A, is, is nonsense. We only really want the, the A on the other side and the unity by which we can only see the first A on the, in A equals A in like the second. Is this equivalence a kind of death for him? And is this why we can't really tackle capital on the side of the real? Because if equivalence has a kind of deathly aspect to it in terms of its own entropy, because equivalence is flattening things out into producing the same stuff again and again, which is more real than real, is that do we have to take capital one in the space of hyperreality? Because hyperreality or the space of equivalence is flattening out of all difference in the equal sign. Is that the kind of death he's talking about here? That's a good question. I think my reading on the on the dead here and the symbolic exchange with them is I don't know how much it plays into this, although I think that the binarization is an important component of of mm. what's going on. So it's I think it's very perceptive and that you pick that up. But the way that I read death as far as the book is concerned is we no longer symbolically exchange with our dead. Mm. But they're part of the amber that sort of controls us, right? Because not only the dead labor, like I discussed just a moment ago, but the mm. dead the dead signification. Like we have this all these old signs that hang around. You know, it's like the only thing we see of old of old uh, signifieds is their signifiers. So we're basically closed off to where the dead are ghettoized, the dead are excluded because they no longer make sense. We can't do commodity exchange with the dead. Unless now you do have some type of vestiges of a symbolic exchange with the dead and something like Dia de los Muertos, right? Where there's the celebration, you dress up like the dead, you leave out actual goods, right? And so it's like, rationally, the dead are not going to come drink your milk or eat your cake or flan or whatever you set out for the dead, right? Like, So that's kind of the a symbolic exchange. So that 
has been sort of foreclosed upon in terms of our, as we proceed into this law of value more stringently. Will and I and Taylor just talked about this last week on on Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour about how this sort of same model would apply to like the the disabled subject. In most cases, in a lot of cases, it's impossible for them to fit into the scheme of production. They problematize that relationship so much. And I think that the dead do as well, right? We don't sort of consider them in the way that our ancestors considered and revered the dead. I, I think there are some very real or actual ways in which the notion of death is staved off in the in the hyper real order in the sense that you know we're producing holograms of tupac but not only that we've infinitized storylines one of the challenges that adam and i had here was understanding the production of the real against this this death because it's, it's precisely the allegory of death the allegory of negation or annihilation that that allows us to understand the real and one of the ways that that i was thinking about that was the hyperreal forecloses upon us actually experiencing the real and and actually some very real ways. So for example, like if your broadband goes out, you can't access anything online. Nothing you do without that broadband connection registers within that symbolic circulation. In effect, you are symbolically dead without that. But when you come back online, you can talk about that experience and, and so forth, and now you're back in the mix. But what does he mean by that there when he he says that there's this sort of analogy towards death with respect to the way that the hyperreal produces the real. I feel like the the question of of participation in symbolic exchanges is problematized by the like the very way in which we conceive of like the conventional intercourse of exchange here is going to be fundamentally much more complicated. What I appreciated in this essay and in our conversation last week on on machinic unconscious happy hour is the fact that the very territoriality is no longer like a conventional nomos it's not subject to the old laws of political sovereignty or even the conventional market but instead the very activity of the of exchange itself becomes that which produces the territory it's no longer a conventional conception of a sort of space, but it still has the games of exclusion and of castigation that one might conceive of when one circumscribes a territory. So that's what I thought was was interesting in in Cooper's in Cooper's comment. What this has to do with my question about uh, about Baudrillard's uh, issue of production on a gigantic scale? I don't know if I have a good answer for that, but yeah. Maybe in terms of like just moving from the first order to the second order, I mean, the idea of machinic production, the entry into market value will be this thing that strips the counterfeit from its, to track the counterfeit into a machinic production, originally the counterfeit is itself a break with a different mode of symbolizing. This is when the simulacra comes to be. It's not that copies come to be, it's that copies of copies come to be. And in particular with the, uh, the copy of the copy, given that every human from this resonance perspective is a copy made in the image of God, we get the image of the theatre, the automated human being as it is scripted by them, by the playwright. This is where we get the automaton as a figure. And this is where in the transition between industrial, uh, the industrial mode of producing simulacra versus counterfeiting, we have this disjuncture between the automaton and the robot. I mean, the automaton is the 
ultimately it's a equivalent copy of humankind, but it maintains a difference insofar as it refers back to the true natural humanity of which it's a copy. Right, so yeah, God created all men in his own image and God created them all equal. But there's still a difference there. It's almost like a fall, a theological fall. This is what Bojo are talking about, the Jesuits trying to recreate this sort of music of the spheres, kind of harmonious art of creation. But then in the advent of industrial production, this is a not a development so much as a rupture, because I, I was thinking about this quote. Oh, I can't remember who said it. It's, a, it's an old American, it's, it's a very American quote. It's, you know, God created all men equal, but Sam Colt made them equal. <laughs> the industrial machine came in and he made them. The industrial machine made them equal. It made that equivalence. In in itself, you know, there's, there's a difference between the implicit ability or you know, implicit making of all humans to be image bearers of of the godhead. But then industrial production comes in and says, no, a human is worth this. The fundamental violence that founds capitalism in slavery and in, in the desubjectivation of human beings, the commodification of all human beings and their reproduction and their productive power, flattens them into this equivalence, and then we get the market law of value. And then the death part is not only in the sense of a desubjectification, but the very chaining of it, because the the dead labor that is produced by those who are worked to death is the labor which will eventually hover over the very reproductions, the copies of the copies that are made in England. I mean, stealing of techniques and literal resources in India will then go into copies of copies produced in the industrial um, foundries of of Manchester and London. So to think about this machinic force of producing science, and I think it is very important to say that he's not talking about literacy or language here. He's talking about science. I mean, I start of a Gucci bag, not a word. You could, I could have started with the Bible as a, a counterfeit thing, because the King James Bible, the, the Catholics would have called a counterfeit. But just thinking about this transition to the machinic, how does, how, I just want to ask the question, how does machinic force operate and how does it lay the groundwork for what's going to come after, which I think is one of the hardest things to explain, which is this transition away from a detachment to particularly to a very solid foundation of market value towards what he would then call the code, reproduction of code, reproduction of reproduction itself. Because capital has to surround itself over the entire world. And then when it does that, it has to reproduce the entire world system again. But before it does that, before it's completed in a way, industrialization and primary accumulation, I'm not saying it necessarily has, but Baudrillard does. That's that's the point where it, until it conquers the entire world, it can't reproduce the entire world in its own image. I think you're kind of highlighting some of the challenges that I'm having with the text because there, there's a way in which it seems that the notion of value or the value form is either underemphasized or underdetermined in this framework. And I'm just trying to be charitable in my reading of it, like how, how to make sense of that with Baudrillard's notion of code, especially with respect to the upscaling or the emancipation of code over time. Is it through the function of real subsumption of industrial processes that like, well, here we are now at this point, we can reproduce the real in certain ways by dint of the productive edifice. Now that the paradigm of reproduction has primacy over production, really what we're saying is, is that the productive edifice has been articulated or been developed in such a way that it, it allows us to, to produce in this manner. This is kind of what's lingering in the background the whole time I'm reading this, your explication of that problematic there, Adam, really touched on it. But I 
I don't know if there's anything in there, Coop, that you can attach to, but what do you think? I was going to say this might, this might actually point to someone like McKinsey Works work on this notion of companies like Facebook, Amazon, et cetera, being this further layer of abstraction on top of the actual producers, right? So we have the the capitalists in China or wherever that are actually producing the physical goods, but those capitalists are now under the purview of the information brokers, Facebook, Amazon, Google, et cetera, Apple, right? The information companies. So this is where sub- production itself gets subsumed under the structural law of value in terms of everything going towards a, a metafiction, a metafication of reality. You have to come through the information brokers in order to have your product because we have access to the markets that you desire, right? So perhaps it is in this way that you can sort of think of this different stage of capitalism, perhaps. Facebook have to make the world in a copy of itself to make the copy of the copy again in the metaverse. (laughs) That's why they're called meta. It's literally, they might as well call it simulacra. Simulacrum, sorry, because that's literally what they've done. They've they've taken over the world as much as they can in terms of how they can copy and right. reproduce it in images. And now they have to re- reproduce that world by reproducing the very world itself. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you, you already saw this with the way that the real world was already uh, reproduced online with the advent of online commerce, right? You know, thinking about something like pets.com or whatever, right? So you go from that model and then it becomes, you know, 20 years later, we have Amazon delivering your new, uh, I was going to say butt plug. You can cut that. <laughs> I don't know why I chose that. <laughs> let's but, let's uh, keep it in. Keep the plug in. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so yeah, the, uh, you can have your little butt plug delivered by drone now, um, courtesy of, of Jeff Bezos. So, and I think perhaps too, it may be production of the real is not it's not a solidified whole, right? The real is being produced more intensely than in uh, in some places than in others, right? It's not an even geographical distribution. Vestiges of the first two orders of the simulacra still persist within our society today, because if you know capitalism in terms of its efficient movement, well, you know some battles are not necessarily worth fighting, right? It can divert its energies into areas where there's less resistance per se of human culture or something like that. Yeah, in terms of machining, I mean, it, I guess we are sort of keep going around. It's it's hard not to jump into the hyper real, I guess, because it is so relevant, I guess. So I guess, yeah, the transition to code. I mean, I just have one question. What is code? Because he's talking about it in the 1976. He's talking about DNA. That's sort of being discovered at the time. How is it a mapping? Yeah, we don't want to give SoCal and Brickmont any ammunition. Let's <laughs> um, going to shoot themselves of it. But that, that's, I mean, <laughs> SoCal has already done that by being a turf. So, okay, so it's the flattening out to the one, the transistor, the digital, the one, the one and the zero. And you can see this. You know, obviously, it's a process, right? It's not occurring everywhere at the same speed, right? There are resistances, but you can see this in terms of something like a like or dislike on Reddit, or a right swipe, left swipe on on something like Tinder, right? So it's the machinification of social relations itself, right? Are we all become, and then, you know, like you're pointing out to with metaverse, right? Then it becomes meta exchange, right? Like we're, we're exchanging digital commodities and so forth. Um, You know, there are some kind of like Sternarian type vibes here because I think Sterner points out to this problematic in terms of the spooks, right? The spook is an abstraction. So 
it's interesting that there's a connection. And I mean, that probably goes back to Hegel, <laughs> ultimately, and Hegel's reach and in, uh, in influence. Is the spook a simulacrum? I mean, the spook is... You can read it in that way, insofar as the the spook, or you know, literally in German, spook. I mean, you can translate it as phantasm, which is fair enough. But it's it's essentially a higher essence, the genus, the appearance of a genus, um, like a generic universality. You know, you're called, you are special because you're human, and the humanness participates in you. If anything, I would say in Fischerner. If I'd say to Fischerner, actually, maybe the Einziger, you are the simulacrum. And that's fine. You are the copy of this copy, and it's not that you are obligated in the counterfeit way. It's not, you know, you're a counterfeit human. You must become human by living up to all these beautiful humanistic quant- uh, qualities or by living up to, you know, the, your fatherland. You are an imperfect copy of the king or something. I think Sterner would actually say that he, in a similar way you'd get with um, Deleuze, with Plato and Simulacrum. No, I am a suit. But I can only be a sort of a suit if I if I have this in me. The human essence is good because it's a property of my of, of me from which I could express myself. It's not something above me. The real and the simulacrum become kind of identified because the real, insofar as it's only considered in light of faithfulness to its reproduction. You know, to, to go in a Hegelian sense, the, the real isn't faithful to its own reproduction. You know, the essence must appear. The faltering you know, essences fate themselves to founder, according to Hegel. They appear in in the non-identity. And when it comes to sort of the other, as you think, the real abstractions here, real abstractions aren't I mean, they're not very enjoyable real abstractions, I guess these days. They are they are quite they're quite pressuring, especially in a society will that will legislate over people by saying you should be a good X, Y, and Z, and then never provide any materials to live up to that. We would rather have simulacra right now because real abstractions aren't simulacra. They're the original copies. We're made to feel like we're made to feel imposterized. We like counterfeit versions of them. Even in academia, we're not being a proper we're not being proper academics. Not writing for journals, giving our free labor to publishing houses and the like for university reasons. And no, it is it is a purely abstractive benefit. I think in that sense, we are moving a little bit away from some of the problematics that not entirely that Baudrillard was talking about, because real abstractions aren't the simulacra. We are. <laughs> There's there's this one sentence in the chapter that we were like assigned where I start to like completely lose. So like I'm not at all really exposed to to much Baudrillard um, other than the Gulf War uh, essays, but uh, the three Gulf War essays. But there's this one moment where Baudrillard kind of shifts what the hyperreal is supposed to mean to us, right? We get this we get this presentation of something which is always already reproduced, right? The hyperreal, there, there is no... And then he says, you may think that this means sort of like mutual reabsorption and so on, but actually, uh, and then it's italicized, today, reality itself is hyperrealist. And the hyperreal can only really come through in sort of a similar way in which surrealism understood the particularity of everyday experience, right? That each of these individual moments in cinematographic time or something can can spurt with a particular sort of energy. He essentially argues that like almost every single realm of the social that we would consider if we were asked like what constitutes like social space, we would be like, oh, like the political, the historical, the economic society and the social itself, all of these other things, 
all of those are instances which have like hyper realist dimensions. So can someone just define it? You know, maybe this kind of takes us into the discussion about the Ukraine stuff a little bit, because the way that I read it was that the the surrealist, the surreal that ruptures reality is an eruptive force, whereas the hyperreal is a constantly pervasive force. And that's to say that there's almost an absolute contiguity between what we would consider simulacra and reality. There's no good way to to make a distinction between those things in real time. And we see salient instances of this going on the timeline, for example. It wasn't even a day into the war with Russia and Ukraine that we're seeing images of Captain America flipped into images of President Zelensky. One of our primary methods of interpreting these events is through the very lens that's constructed by this apparatus of of hyperreality, of media, of illusion, of hallucination, right? And so we experience something like a war as an event, as one that's that's wholly constructed in the sense of the Gulf War did not take place. But I think these days there's much more at stake than that, because now it's the it's not that we're all just sitting at home watching CNN. We've democratized this process. Part of this is like consuming the people making the what is it? The Avengers Endgame meme and then allowing for an exchange on top of essentially what we'll consider like deeply cringe inducing. I mean, somebody like a 19-year-old in between classes at a community college made that meme and then circulated it. And then, of course, there's got to be rival memes reclaiming it, you know, popping different... There's got to be a quote tweet. Yeah, there's a quote tweet, but then there's also alterations of that image and so forth. And that becomes part of the plane of contestation. It's not only that the war in Russia is happening, but there's there's contestation on the surface of, of the timeline, as it were. And these things fall back upon that event. It's to the point these days where like a private or a corporal in some sort of meeting could just film a map for IG stories. And that gives a tactical advantage to some field commander who's about to roll on those people. There's a sort of semiological guerrilla warfare that also feeds into the molar, more conventional forms of conflict. In terms of the, obviously the very well done morale boosting operation that is these, you know, these various Ukrainian memes and the, you know, Ghost of Kiev and um, the the Snake Islands uh, guys who Good, all all made out alive. Um, even though we, we thought it was some sort of you know dramatic last stand, like yeah, it's like a copy of the Battle of the Bulge when it's you know uh, to the to the German commander nuts signed the American commander. It was that kind of thing. I mean, obviously this is a it's fair enough. It's, mem- it's morale boosting operation for their side, and the morale boosting has worked. And the insurgency uh, will last for decades to come if Putin is stupid enough to try and take over the entire country. It will be his Afghanistan. But then, like three times as three times as uh, expensive and bloody, and hopefully it wouldn't happen. And hopefully he wouldn't be so stupid to do it. But then again, he has seemed to have completely lost it. What they are doing though is feeding it into part of the Ukrainian morale machine is also to generate international solidarity in a really beautiful way by gen- by putting it into the masturbatory content economy of the West because reality is being produced, right? By signs. Because we're sort of in the West, we're sort of out of the frame of this in certain ways. We're like, okay, what's real about this? 
well, what's real about this in terms of our journalistic framing, our scientific objective fact-checking framing, is what's real is what could be reproduced according to the facts. Okay, well, how do we know this reproduction's real? We've got to fact-check our fact-checking. Does it? Can this reproduction be reproduced? And the same machine of verification is spiraling out, and also it's not just reproducing according to the journalistic norms, but also how the journalists reproduce their own image of themselves, i.e. a colossal wank. And this ties into how they like to think about themselves as telling truth to power, holding tyrants to account, particularly in Britain, where they have never done such a thing and never will. And this is where you get people at Ozkataji going over there, reporting that he went to a supermarket and they said, no, you you go ahead, sir. You're doing the real work here. And it, it, that sort of masturbatory work that happens in the, in the journalistic media apparatuses of the West, particularly the Anglophone-speaking ones of this now shattering unipolar order, are great for are great for the morale of the place. It does generate international solidarity and it will generate some much needed assistance to the people of Ukraine, not only militarily, but also more importantly, humanitarianly, which we're not having in the UK because somehow we managed to be more racist than, than France, which is I guess an achievement. <laughs> but there we go. Anyway, so how much trouble am I going to get in for that? <laughs> we'll find out. If I'm going to have to have a take on this, I might as well just have a take. And then what you have, of course, is the you have a, a slew of of other folks. You know, you have the Gal Gadots of the world singing to the masses. Uh, you know, B tier actresses and actors doing psychoanalysis on the timeline, and any sort of hopeful or potentially viable alternative political reality. Anything that falls outside of the scope of what, some sort of state action or putting in a no-fly zone is completely off the map. Instead, you have this just massive cloud of dust and narcissism just kicked up, and, and, and that's what circulates, and, and everything else is excluded. How, how can this help us understand... This is going to be a question of like the amateur trying to to tackle all of these images that's coming across from a very tragic and just like, uh, you know, I think in in many ways this this is kind of a reminder, you know, tragic, not just in the sense of like the loss of life, but as like a sort of perpetual reminding after. COVID and how fundamental information flows were, how fragile, but at the same time, rigid and unchanging some of these media structures are, right? Because one of the things you notice when you look at how this conflict is being covered is it's being deeply racialized. You know, part of the fundamental problem that, that Western media cannot handle is the image of quote unquote cities that look like X being subject to this violence because that's exported since the end of the second world war. It's the places that, that the United States and the EU have exploited that become the zones of conflict like this. And how can an understanding of media informed by a Baudrillardian perspective help us understand the absolutely bizarre and deeply sad nature of the racist reporting 
in and on Ukraine. Well, I think one of the things right off the bat is is that all the critiques are recuperated. The critiques themselves never seem to bring to bear any sort of effect that they they want to have. And it's almost a given at this point that, you know, when when you have an event like what's happening with the mass exodus of folks from Ukraine into Poland and, you know, the racialization of that, the the critiques are expected. When has anything positive happened for the folks in Palestine? When has anything happened for the people in Central Africa? Nothing. I mean, we see those critiques pop up. They're cannibalized in a certain way. They're redeployed, you know, in in the form of retweets and and likes and whatnot. That generates revenue for the social media platforms. Maybe they're foregrounded for a moment on Yahoo.com or in CNN. They're put in the sidebar there. That's the deep pessimism I have about this. And even with Baudrillard's talk about graffiti, I mean, we get a sense in which that tagging and graffiti can be an expression of revolt. And I mean, he hastens to, at the very end of this chapter, he hastens to say that like, oh, here's some ways that this can be recuperated too. And it has. Just like I was talking with Adam before this, I can't tell you how many big parties that, um, you know, where I worked in LA where, you know, young people are having either a birthday party or a bar mitzvah. And these are, these are wealthy people and they're bringing in break dancers and they, they bring in a wall and they're spray painting and this and that. And so the very image of revolt becomes the centerpiece for this party (laughs) being completely evacuated of, of its meaning, being completely defanged of that act's ability to territorialize a space of meaninglessness, that itself gets captured and thrown back into the hyper-real mix again. And, and that, I think, is the, the sort of persistent and perennial issue. Yeah, there's only, zo- only acceptable zones in which graffiti can be maintained or performed. But it is still somewhat of a threat, right? Like it does, that is one element to where I think this is a rather kind of toothless critique, but it does still have some relevance because, you know, if there is graffiti in a neighborhood, especially, you know, a wealthy area or like a, right, those, uh, that issue is immediately addressed, right? Like it's very serious, it's very seriously and harshly and swiftly addressed if you're, if you're doing graffiti. So it's a very, that's a very interesting dynamic, but yeah, at the end of the day, it feels like a rather, you know, I mean, if we're only ability to, (laughs) To sort of revolt back against, to fight back against capitalism is a, is to be taggers. I don't know, you know. Yeah, I don't know how it is in in your town, but like in L.A. I'm sure it's similar. There's like murals and shit that are commissioned. Yeah, or even even at Venice Beach, they basically have an open wall that's just constantly available for graph artists to come down and and do pieces on and just this aura of spray paint and the and the odor is just constantly there and that's one of the ways that they try to redirect yeah control those libidinal flows of desire um although i think Baudrillard would be far more sanguine than guatari and probably say that yeah there's a body without organs but it's it's capital <laughs> I mean, this is the sort of thing at this end of this chapter talking about graffiti that I think Leotard is very right to pull Baudrillard up for in um, the design name Marks chapter of the Vidnor Economy because he says this is, you know, essentially, Baudrillard's argument is, you know, the graffiti is a kind of culture jamming, a kind of insurrectionary code without meaning. And it's like, well, who, who are you to say it's got no meaning? And, uh, but, you know, Leotard is... He goes back in the tradition of Marcel Mauss and Levi Strauss and uh, Bataille and Baudrillard talking about the, the idea of potluck, the, the idea this, he, th- which he thinks is a misinterpretation of the tradition of potluck based on 
a kind of reading of the the so-called primitive or so-called savage in terms of their ability to do non-communication, to do pure expenditure, pure waste, and something that we've lost. And sort of the idea of, and Beaujard does use the term savage, you know, this is their savagery, which is then repressed by the police. And I think by using that, he forecloses in a way which, I mean, Lyotard, I think, arguably quite accurately could call very much racist, the very ways in which the one's racism or the racialization of that other doing the action actually forecloses the ability of of someone like Baudrillard or the police or the government to see what's actually going on. It only feels like it's meaningless because the very constituent categories by which you uh, recognize that person as a racialized person make them unrecognizable. And this is something that Cedric Robertson points out in his um, description of the of people, groups like the Obeya, the, the, some of the, the slave revolts, in Haiti and the Americas, where essentially they were only seen as this, you know, spout these witches spouting nonsense because in order to justify that racial ideology over them, they had to eliminate all of their actual ability to produce meaning and produce uh, significations and produce a cultural kind of consciousness. And, you know, racializing has to reduce that, reduce subjectivity of the racialized person from its very foundations in this case. So, to speak of graffiti as a non-communication, I, I'd, I'm not saying graffiti couldn't be kind of a practice of jamming, but I think maybe it's not non-communication. I think it's a, a, a kind of communication that the, if any, it signals a possibility of a kind of communication that through the biases of the very system of production of science itself, through the very capitalist system, I think that's understands as a racial capitalism, constitutive, constitutively cannot recognize these forms of communication. And that allows you to communicate in a manner that provides some avenues for either escape or given the hyper the hypertrophy of capital and its economy of signs, signs in which you can find points of dis- disruption and destruction and destitution when they could not find this as a recognizable entity. And it seems strange because I think Baudrillard presents us with the, the the very tools that you're you're talking about here, but then goes as far as to say at the very end of the chapter that we're talking about that those who are doing graffiti don't have a subjectivity. He, I mean, he goes as far as to use the word personality that they don't express personality. Oh, yeah. These these are explosive collective acts that that are devoid of 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 identity. But yet, in the same breath, validating the notion that they're oppressed peoples and so forth, which I, I I thought was really weird because I mean the idea of of savagery and the the notion of primitive is sometimes in these readings, at least when I'm reading Claster or you know Deleuze and Guattari, it's just kind of a, a holdover from you know a previous generation. But he kind of leans into it, and and that that makes the reading of this somewhat difficult. But you know, it's interesting in, in in reading this this section on graffiti. You know, it made me think of the kind of sticker phenomenon that we see these days. And I don't know how it is in Austin, but this is certainly the case in Los Angeles. Maybe within the past like seven to eight years or thereabouts, there's this phenomenon of putting stickers everywhere that have what seems to be like just jumbled letters and just odd words and that sort of thing. But maybe even prior to that, the the whole idea of stealing postal labels from the post office and creating your own sticker and then just popping it on a stop sign or a parking meter or something like that, where this is a kind of defiant act of the order of the hyperreal in the sense that it is an original creation, Right. It's a deterritorialization of this this state made label. It's a singular 
artistic creation, if you will, and it defies the kinds of things that we see in the sort of homogenous, flattened urban landscape. I have a good follow-up too. So, you know, I'm located here in Austin. We have South by Southwest coming up soon. And one thing that they do, the city does in preparation for it is to, uh, they wrap all of the light, any, basically any pole up to like five or six feet high that could be stickered or flyered. And so that at the end of the conference, they can merely rip them all down. It's almost like in Philadelphia when, when the Eagles won the Super Bowl, they grease the poles. Yeah, it's kind of, I guess, relevant or goes back to that example of like the graffiti park where they're designating zones of of deterritorialization or whatever, if you want to go that route. In terms of the easy removability of this, uh, these kind of significations, I mean, this is in a way what happens in a lot of international disasters. They have a template, in a way, of of solidarities, of solidarity significations, which can be reused for the for the next war. Ultimately, I guess to being a bit more you know, gravity and seriousness to the last thing I was saying. I mean, it this this machine can be useful for generating solidarity, absolutely, and in particularly in terms of generating material support. But there's st- there are still a limit to it insofar as the signs aren't fully as determinate as we may think they are. Particularly in terms of you know, at least in the, in the UK perspective, yeah, you know, a million a million signs have bloomed a million times. We've renamed you know those 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 little breaded chicken frozen dinners with the, the garlic butter in them to, to chicken kids. I mean, but it's, there's, if we still need pro, pro, you know, put through 50 visa applications to this day. And it shows that the, a, a truly, a semiosis of solidarity in which the sign has really become no longer just a, a question of solidarity, no longer the immediate real, but more real than real, more you know, solidarity is actually being reproduced as a proactive kind of signification, not just as a language, but as as a virtualization. Yeah, virtualization, and also as a manifestation in the material world. We are still very much missing that. And I guess in some ways, then you can imagine there's a Baudrillardian sort of graffitiing of traditional solidarity things, you know, spraying over if I stand with X and saying, well, you know, if you if don't stand at the door, fucking open it kind of thing. Otherwise we get so get stuck in a kind of a I guess I'm going to coin this term now a banksification. Everything is just kind of a Banksy. Well, anything that made uh, that allowed for the propaganda of the deed to come through in Banksy is gone. The second Banksy is ascribed a conventional author function, right? Like the the very thing that that makes these expressions speak a reason or provide a provocation is gone the second it's ascribable, right? Because part of part of what makes these moments of expression in Banksy compelling was the fact that it it essentially dissipated across a collective cultural intensity, whether that's a you know a level of resent for a particular policy or, you know, hating the police, right? These these are things that we allow to flow over ourselves because they they should speak for themselves to us. But the second they speak in the name of Banksy, well. And then on on the flip side, you have somebody like Shepard Ferry, who was kind of lumped in with uh, Banksy and company 
back when that was was trending and what he's worth like 10 million dollars now and you know assiduously defends his property rights and i mean once again just complete recuperation of this sort of rebellious aesthetic but it doesn't seem that that happened with banksy I mean, we never really found out who Banksy was. So. Well, he's already got all that money from, you know, being in massive attacks. So, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. <laughs> nice. Nicely done. Maybe we'll kind of wrap things up. We'll start with Will. Any big takeaways from this? Any future interests in Baudrillard? I struggle with Baudrillard. I'll, I'll put it that way. Like maybe, maybe a lot of this goes over my head. Most of it does. I think he's a fascinating semiotician. I do wish we covered a little bit more of the the cybernetics here because I think that maybe that's a space that we can talk about later when we when we eventually jump down that rabbit hole. But yeah, for me what <laughs> there's a strange dread of the contemporary that I get where I just I I feel mildly helpless. But other than that, yeah, it's an interesting read. Yeah, he kind of locks that feeling in for you. Like, if you didn't already have that sort of pessimism or nihilistic streak within you, you know, he basically gives you the manual on it. <laughs> um, what about you, Adam? I mean, yeah, I, I get the fear of the contemporary. I essentially, I'm already regretting whatever I said about Ukraine in this podcast, because <laughs> not because I think it was necessarily wrong, but it's because the contemporary, I'm more of a Hegelian that philosophy always shows up too late to say anything. All we can really talk about is the media aspects of our own cultures and tell us and you know, tell them what they're doing wrong. The journalistic class in, in the UK, for example, I think it's a very good way to understand them in a Baudrillardian sense, particularly when it comes to the flat, an easy way in which they can reproduce and produce equivalences, you know, even the simple bad, good labels for which they create a chain of equivalences from which they construct themselves and reproduce themselves and how they serve certain kinds of apparatuses of power rightly or wrongly. I mean, Baudrillard, this text was, some, was something that I think particularly in the US and the UK or anywhere that was really trying the whole left populism thing, where you create a chain of equivalences along the lines of Laclau and Mouffe in, 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 in the popular imagination to, create, to construct a signifier of the people and who the people are equivalent to and who the non you know, who this outside is, you know, who capital is, who the people responsible for the natural crash are. I think this could have been a bit more sensitive in terms of not necessarily the writers themselves, maybe the club have been quite conversant with this, but in terms of the movements themselves and the limits in terms of what machines they were facing up to in the media that were already far better at producing these equivalences and, could, and produced them with far greater intensity than, than these ground-up forces could ever come to. I still think there's a limit because, I mean, Baudrillard recognises this himself in an identical. I think Baudrillard is very good for now analysing the media, not so much in terms of what it does, because we, we know what it does. We enjoy what it does in many ways, these reproductions. And we can talk about that in the sense of new movies coming out all the time versus the very limited ways in which these reproductive capacities can help us build solidarity with oppressed people and how they haven't. How there hasn't been a, a constant, you know, a, hasn't been these images of Yemen, uh, but also more of Palestine, more of Yemen, more of places in the Central African Republic. The things that are happening with the mining extractive processes in places like Congo, we aren't really seeing that here. And I think this is Bojard is great for finding parts in which 
reproduct the flows of reproduction end up going in certain directions because they're controlled in advance by ways that keep them going in one direction or another, according to racialized imperialist colonialist schemas and traditions. When it comes to those schemas, you have to find their blind spots, what they aren't doing and why they aren't doing it. And this is where, as, as Will said, the cybernetics of this, the science of control the inputs and outputs, the one and zero, which turns everything into an input-output machine, into a Turing machine, a controlled, tested, predetermined machine of reproduction and how that flows. So beyond being afraid as a contemporary, I say that Baudrillard is very good to understanding why they're focusing on certain things rather than others, why we enjoy what they focus on and why there is a mass cultural enjoyment what they focus on, or even whether there is supposed to be an image of mass enjoyment of this. And why it hasn't been focusing on certain aspects. So the positive programs for disrupting it, I think looking at those those spots of of where they've not blind spots, there's not nothing to do with their ability, it's what they've desired to see and why they haven't seen it there. And looking at what those desires are that maintain this system of reproduction acting in the directions in which it already is and continues to reproduce itself in. Before I give Cooper the last word, I think my lingering concern is a Deleuzian one, which is how could the new ever be created from the hyperreal? One of the things that we didn't cover here, but is within this chapter, is the idea of the erection of the Twin Towers as a kind of doubling. And I've been reading some of the work of CCRU recently and some of the work of Otto Rank, and it's just interesting that I've had this synchronicity uh, of of reading these works that talk about the notion of doubling historically, how in non-state societies, for example, uh, the appearance of twins was often viewed as dreadful. I mean, in some cases it could be seen as a boon, but typically there were, there were functions or institutions within society that would stave off the, the horrors or the evils of that form of doubling. And I think it's apt that that Baudrillard chooses the Twin Towers as an appearance of a kind of doubling that institutes a new way of looking at capitalism, which is a correlative form of capitalism, not a competitive form. And I think for a moment, Baudrillard had history on his side with the fall of the Soviet Union, for example, the the rise to ultimate supremacy, at least for a time, of the United States and its allies. But then when we come to 9-11, it's not that one tower collapses, but both of them collapse. So there's yet another doubling. And, you know, this can be seen as a, a rupture, you know, maybe the real coming through the hyper real. And with, with respect to what we're seeing now with the war in Russia, for example, it makes me think, are we going to see more or less of that? Like, what does this conflict reveal about the nature of the world? Um, I, I think with respect to the racialization of the conflict, we already see where what our power block is doing. We're giving passage to Ukrainian refugees. This doesn't happen to refugees from Palestine or from Central Africa, as we're saying. We're also seeing the strength of NATO and the Atlanticist capitalist order. I mean, it didn't take very long to shut down Russia's economy and to devalue their currency. And, you know, given what are now being 
you know, projected as the missteps of Putin militarily, it remains to be seen what's going to happen over the next 5, 10, 15 years. I mean, even this this coming week, we don't know how this conflict is going to escalate. But I think it has laid bare something about the nature of the hyper-real with respect to the kind of capitalist order that we live within and the forces that have always dominated or, you know, have historically dominated, I should say, and the very real power that they maintain. There's a way in which I think Putin's resentment and attack on the West in this violent struggle is an eruption of sorts, of, but I think it's retrograde. I, I mean, I think what we're seeing is a, a sort of pang of the old order, you know, lashing out against the world of advanced Atlanticist capitalism. And, and who knows how that's going to go for him and for the rest of the world, for that matter. To me, it actually intensifies the question of, can the new be produced? Do we have more steps backwards before we even get there? And so this is, this is where, where Baudrillard kind of leaves me. But anyway, Coop, what do you got? Quite a bit, but I'll try and be as, as brief as possible. Um, I think one thing we didn't talk much about was the, I think the screen and I think the way that in hyper-reality, the binarization of the code flattens out things so that it's merely the surface effects. There are, like, it's completely detached from any sort of real into. Though there are, right, like the real does inquire these injections of itself to keep the simulation going, right? Um, so things like, you know, little, you know, something like COVID, for example, is I think an example of the real bursting through and helping accelerate the production of a, of a new hyperreal. In terms of positive takeaways, I don't think there are very many positive takeaways from this model of hyperreality that Baudrillard, you know, discusses. It's more of like we're becoming these sort of lobotomized machinic beings that don't have any sort of real agency. We're sort of like these uh, atomistic robots that just sort of consume, like, you know, we're just kind of like hitting the we're like little rat lab rats that are hitting the paddle. Yes or no, you know, it's and sort of reducing us to that. But I think stepping away from that, if you want to understand what this, what simulation and simulacra are or how they function, I would point to a couple of films that are both fantastic. And I think really exemplify what Baudrillard's really getting at. And that would be the Orson Welles film F is for fake. And then um, Cynic Duhi, New York. Those are really good films. If you want to kind of under, get a feel for, for this thing, I think I would point you in those directions. If you're someone that struggles with you know, a text like this, I think those can often show you without telling you, so to speak, is a little bit easier to digest and get a feel for kind of this uh, of what hyperreality really ultimately is. 